0: Yes, we can. That was Obama's slogan uh, from eight years ago. Can you believe it's been eight years uh, since he came to power in the uh, United States? It seems like a a bit of a strange situation now. Now, that's perhaps not the uh, the first statement you'd associate with the theme of mission and evangelism that we're looking at this morning. Perhaps other words came to mind or phrases. No, we can't. Or please, send someone else, Lord. Or here I am, send him. Send him. And we said at our away day that actually, it's understandable away, isn't it? It way, isn't it? It is impossible, the task of mission and evangelism. Uh, but we want to argue this morning that yes, yes we can and yes we should. Because actually God is at work in us to make it possible. So our statement this morning uh, that we have before us is that uh, every, we believe every believer is a missionary where they are, but some are sent to the ends of the earth. Now, you might not feel like a missionary this morning, but I want to argue that if you are a Christian here this morning, that you are. Now, the goal of this morning is not to make you feel guilty. That can often be the outcome, can't it, when we talk about evangelism and we think, oh, I don't do it. Um, I want you to leave this morning thinking, yes, we can. Yes, we can reach a needy world with the gospel. So that's what I want us to be thinking through. How can we do it? How can we reach our world with the gospel. And my first point is just that every Christian is a missionary. If you don't believe me, uh, believe C.H. Spurgeon, the Victorian Baptist speaker, he said this, every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. That's how he saw the Christian life. And his church, if you'll know, saw amazing growth Uh, during the Victorian era, going uh, from building to building, growing, because he fostered this atmosphere that every believer, every member of his church, was a missionary. But why? Why is every believer a missionary? Well, why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be a missionary? Why wouldn't you be a missionary when the need is so great? Estimates put it that 52 million people in the UK haven't put their trust in Jesus yet. Uh, And if the stats are to believe, then actually in our area, in the Wharfdale Valley, there are 49,800 people uh, without a personal faith in the Lord Jesus in our valley, and only roughly 200 with a living faith. That's the situation that we live in. That sounds very much like a missionary situation. Why wouldn't you be a missionary in that sort of climate? Why wouldn't you be a missionary when Jesus commands us to make disciples? Of all nations. I don't think there are any of us here who think that when Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, that was just to the apostles. We believe that applies to us now. And that means all of us are on mission. All of us are involved in fulfilling that great commission. All of us are told to make disciples. Now we saw last week, didn't we, that it's more than just making converts, that actually it's about growing uh, as well in our Christian faith. But it does involve evangelism. It does involve going out and telling it to people. And we literally are the ends of the earth that Jesus was talking about here in Ollie and Ilkley. We are at the edge of the known world as Matthew wrote those words. Actually, they only went as far as Scotland. They didn't know anything beyond the Scottish border. We really are the edge of the earth in terms of what Matthew is saying. So we are here. We are actually involved in that Uh, in that pattern. And Jesus is going with us as we do it, giving us power and perseverance to keep going. So Jesus has told us to be missionaries. So why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you be missionaries when the gospel is so glorious and God is so great? The Bible tells us that although we have mucked up big style, we are rescued by grace alone through faith alone. In other words, there's nobody beyond God's reach Because salvation is a gift that can be given to anybody. And it doesn't depend on how good or how bad you have been. It's a glorious message and it's for absolutely anybody. It could even be for you this morning if you haven't put your trust in Jesus yet. Jesus' death paid our penalty. God gave him what we deserve that we might have what he deserved, eternal life. He merited life, we merited death. That he took our death, and we get his life. Hallelujah! What a message! So why wouldn't you be a missionary with such good news to tell people? And the wonderful thing is that you don't even need to go anywhere. You can be missionaries right where you are. I don't think we're going to have a shortage of non-Christians in our area to reach with the gospel. So we can be missionaries right here. So instead of asking why should we be missionaries, why why shouldn't we be? Why wouldn't you be? Given the, the need, given the gloriousness of the gospel, and given the command of Jesus. What does it mean to be a missionary? What does it actually mean? Well, we're going to focus on two verses that were read earlier, Matthew 5, 15 and 16. I'll read them to you again. Sorry, 14 to 16. You are the light... Sorry, 13 to 16. There we go. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, it means to be salt and light. What does it mean to be salt? Well, salt, this is going to sound really obvious, but salt must be salty to be salt. Uh, Otherwise, it's worthless, isn't it? Otherwise, it's just really sprinkling dust on your food uh, as you sprinkle salt. It would be like putting tomato ketchup on a tomato, wouldn't it, if there was no difference in taste. And what Jesus is saying is he says that we must be salt is that we must live salty lives. We must live different, distinctive lives. Lives like Jesus lived. Lives like the Beatitudes that we were reading just before. Different lives that are distinctive from the world around us. Are our lives salty? Are we any different from the people who are outside this building? We must live salty lives to make a difference, to be missionaries in our world. We must speak salty words as well. You see on the back of your sheet there, there's Colossians 4 verse 5. It says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. See the theme of evangelism? Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we must speak salty words as well. Salty lies without salty words will lead to salvation by works. That's what will happen. People will think that it's the life that we live. Now, the gospel message is about Jesus, isn't it? And our lives are important in that message as we back up the gospel. But our lives alone are not enough. Our lives alone could never teach salvation by grace through faith. Our lives can never teach Jesus' death and resurrection. They can show its power as we live it out. And it's important that we show its power as we live different lives. But we must speak too. We must speak salty words. What do we mean by salty words? What do we speak? Well, I'm not saying that we just quote Bible verses at people. Uh, After the away day, someone thought that's what I'd said, so I thought I need to correct uh, that. I'm not saying that we just go around uh, quoting verses at people. The word is powerful, The word is our tool for evangelism, but we don't need to quote it chapter and verse. As we talk to people, it will involve asking questions to them, insightful questions. It will involve listening to what they say and talking appropriately. And we will tell them what the Bible says. We might even open up the Bible with them, perhaps go for coffee with them and read through a gospel with them. But I'm not suggesting we just randomly quote at people. I'm not suggesting we sort of pass people on the street and... All of sin that the glory of God. Or I'm not suggesting you just sort of randomly drop it into conversation. How was your weekend, John? 3.16? That's not the way that it works. I'm not suggesting that you have to know verses word for word... You know, well, I'd love to tell you about Jesus' death, but I can't quite remember whether it was he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, or whether it was he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so I guess we'll just have to leave that. We don't need to know things word for word, but it will mean that we'll open up the message of the Bible with people. We'll use it as our tool wisely and appropriately. So how could we do that better as a church and as individuals if we want to be salty-salt, if we want to speak salty words, if we want to live salty lives, how can we do that better? But our second point with salt is that salt must be spread. Salt must be spread. Have you ever had that situation where you've had a lot of salt in one part of a meal and then none of it in the rest of it, where you've accidentally put a lot of salt? It's disgusting, isn't it, when you eat the salty bit and it's disgusting when you eat the rest of it because it's not got the salt on it. Or perhaps you put all your salt in one meal, I remember a few years ago I I was sharing a house with someone and they offered to cook for me uh, and they made um, enchiladas I think it was and I don't know how they managed to get so much salt uh, in this meal it was it was inedible Um, it was really embarrassing because they'd made it for me and sort of took one bite and it really was unpleasant and in the end my housemate actually ate the my enchiladas as well and his own and he was ill uh, for about three days we think it was salt poisoning uh, I think he'd salted it every single stage of cooking, you know, cook the meat, salt it, cook the onion, salt it, and then put more salt. It was, it was disgusting. But it's because it was all in one place. Actually, if that had been spread over several meals, <laughs> or several years, um, <laughs> it would have been much better, because salt is designed to be spread, isn't it? It's no good being salt and all gathered in one room. Salt in a salt shaker isn't really fulfilling its purpose, is it? So is the same with us as Christians. We are to be spread. We are to be scattered. Scattered through the week, gathered on a Sunday, scattered uh, in the world and gathered around the Word. That's not a problem that we're scattered in the week. That's by design that God has made us in different places, in different settings. So some scattering happens naturally, doesn't it? We're scattered when we're at work, we're scattered when we're at school. We're scattered when we're in our homes, in that everybody has neighbours, and everybody here has different neighbours. We're scattered uh, in our area. Some scattering can be more deliberate, can't it? So there are people who are involved in things like choirs, or people who are involved in things like Singing for the Brain, or Slimming World. I won't say who those people are. But you can be more deliberate about it, scattering in the communities, uh, in our community, and you can be deliberate as well about the natural. So we went away to the FIC uh, Leaders Conference, and one of the most powerful things uh, that we saw in the week was the way that Ed Stetson, who was doing the talks, the American guy, uh, he'd been really convicted that he wasn't doing evangelism. He was going around the world speaking about evangelism, but he wasn't actually doing any. And he decided he was going to try and uh, reach his neighbourhood. He said, right, God has put me in a certain place, and he just marked out his house. He actually physically did it at home. And they said, right, who are the people around me? Well, we've got this person who lives here. We've got this person who lives here. And he marked out eight people. And he went through and he explained, well, you know, I, I got, tried to get to know this person and shared the gospel with him. And, you know, it took several years. But now, actually, he's a, a, an elder at our church, a deacon or elder at our church. And then there's this other person. Well, well he's very anti, and he's not very, in uh, fact, he's, you know, really not good at talk. He's the sort of person who shouts at your children uh, for going on his lawn." And sort of listed up, and he knew all his neighbours. He'd made the effort to get to know, uh, people. It's really convicting. You know, how much do we know our neighbours? And we, we sort of say, oh, well, in our world now, we don't really know our neighbours. But we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be distinctive. Actually, it just takes a bit of effort, do So we, we've tried to do the same thing on our road, and get to know the people around us. We've got, we've done our own little map, um, of the people on our road. Where do they stand? Where do we think they are theologically? little bit so we know a couple of people that way not too sure about other people and it means that we can pray for them we can be deliberate about uh, our scattering if you like where we are now imagine if we just pray for our neighbors maybe there are eight houses around us Tried to get to know how many people would we reach with a church of 30 or 40 people that'd be huge and that's just where you live that's just one area uh, of our lives so we're we're scattered aren't we but that's good that's a good thing. We're spread. That's what salt is supposed to be. And we need to live distinctive lives where we are. So we're, we're to be salty. We're to be spread. What about light? What is he getting at there? Well, we have to be light. We are the light of the world, he says. That we already are, interestingly. He doesn't say, be the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. This is part and parcel of being an everyday Christian, Now some of you are thinking, really, are we the light of the world? What about John 9 verse 5? This is what Jesus said. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Isn't Jesus the light of the world? Well, as we reflect Christ's character, as we live in him, we are the light of the world. It's a bit like he is the sun, S-U-N, and we're the moon. We have light, we light up the sky, but we do it because we reflect The light that Jesus gives to us. We look like him. We bring Jesus' light to the world. That's how we're the light of the world. We're a city on a hill. We are a city again. It doesn't say be a city. Now, he could have said a lighthouse. I think if I was writing this, I might have been tempted to say, you are a lighthouse on a hill. Because that would be really, really visible. They had them in those days. But why does he say city? Well... A city has to do with community, doesn't it? It's not just one person on a hill. It's a city on a hill. He's speaking to a group of people. Actually, part of being light in this world, part of being distinctive and and bright, is that we stand together, that we're a city together. Now, it also might mean that we're a target. If you've got a city on a hill, you can't hide it. And actually, as we read those Beatitudes, we see that actually part and parcel of that is persecution, as we're seen as the light of the world. But we we do it together. We face that together as a community, a city on a hill. And he says that with a light, you don't stick it under a basket. Do you see that there in, in verse 15? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. What he's saying here with light is really similar to what he was saying with salt, light is there to be seen it's there to be spread light kept in one place is no good so a bit like having a torch and sticking it in a cardboard box great for the cardboard box if you're inside it why you'd be inside a cardboard box I don't know Um, but it'd be great inside the box wouldn't it but for outside the box it's useless so the goal is to give light to the whole house the goal is to be seen so that's why he says let your light shine now, if you're anything like me, you find this a tough idea—the idea of letting your light shine, especially because actually elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're looking at, Matthew six verses three and four, Jesus says, "But when you give to the needy, do you not know what? Do you not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you." Which is it? Do we do our good works? Be seen? Let our light shine or do we do them in secret? He says the same about prayer in there, to, to do it in secret. Which is it? Well I think the difference is why you're doing these things. And I would want to say what he's saying there is don't do good things to be seen. Don't do good things to be seen. Do good things, be involved with other people and you will be seen. You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So we're not to do our good works to be seen. The world can see through PR, can't it? It gets it all the time. Think about the elections we've just seen. People kissing babies, hugging huskies. And then the election's over and you you don't see it for another four or five years, do you? People see right through it. Really, we should love people because we love people. Really, we should care for people because we care for people. We should give to those in need because God has changed our hearts. Those are the works that really shine when they're real, when they're not fake. If we want our works to shine, we should do them whether we're being seen or not. And if we do that, they will be seen. So are there good works that you've done, sacrifices that you've made that nobody knows about? Are there things that you've done in secret? Then don't worry about being seen. Because actually it's a good test of your hearts, isn't it? That your heart is in the right place. Be worried more if every good work that you've ever done, every sacrifice you've ever made, has been seen, and you've made sure that it's been seen. That's the time to worry, because it it says something about our motives. So if we're living like Jesus, reflecting his light, we will be noticed, so long as we're not deliberately hiding it under a basket. And I think by that, really, he's got that idea of a sort of holy huddle that we can be in, where we're not actually mixing with people who could see something different about us. Whether that's stuck in a holy huddle, where all our friends are Christians, we have no non-Christian friends, or in a sort of comfy love bubble with our own nuclear family, we're not spending time with other people. If we're going to reach this world, then we need to listen to Jesus and be salt and be light, be spread, be seen in our world. I don't know if this has got you wondering, but this this made me think then, what about evangelists and missionaries? What about actual evangelists and missionaries? If we're all missionaries, who are these guys? Well, I want to argue that evangelists are not quite what we think they are. Let's have a look at what the Bible says. Have a look at Ephesians four eleven. It's on the back of your uh, sheets. It's one that we looked at last week. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry, for building up of the body. Now, we often focus on the last little bit of that verse there, uh, where it says the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry, But do you notice that all those roles there are given to equip the saints for works of ministry, for the building up of the body? In other words, evangelists are actually given to train the people of God for works of ministry. In other words, evangelists are trainers, just like we saw pastors were last week. Just like you don't get a minister to come in and do your ministry, you don't get an evangelist to come in and do your evangelism. That's not how it works. So think even of the classic evangelists that we think of. Billy Graham. If you've not heard of him, he was a a, a big deal for a long time uh, in the US and the UK. He used to do crusades, as he called them, where they'd fill um, stadiums full of people. But I want to ask the question, did people just turn up to Billy Graham crusades? I know people, quite a few people who were saved uh, in Billy Graham crusades. And actually, all the people I know were brought by their friends to those crusades. It wasn't Billy Graham just suddenly developed a crowd. Actually there was months of preparation. People were uh being given the information, told to invite their friends from months before. Was this their first run in with Christianity when they uh, became Christians at a Billy Graham crusade? Well no, often they'd been in contact with a friend who brought them. They'd seen the gospel lived out in their friend and often they'd had the gospel shared with them with by their friend or someone else before. Did Billy Graham personally talk to every person? No, he did the talk up the front. But actually then when people wanted to become Christians they were brought to the front and there were counsellors who chatted to them. And actually most people who became Christians at Billy Graham crusade became Christians at the front with a counsellor. Somebody who was talking to them. Volunteers. And sometimes those conversations would go on for hours. So Billy Graham was very good at opening up God's word. That's something that he did very well every time. But he was also very good at mobilising and training other people. He had a whole organisation getting people trained for these missions. A Billy Graham crusade involved far more people than Billy Graham. So actually, even with the classic evangelists that we think of, the key part of that was training, was learning to share the gospel. There were more people involved than just Billy Graham. Now, we don't often have evangelists now I don't know if you've noticed that. There aren't many churches that have an official church evangelist. And often now, really, it's bound in with the role of pastor. Uh, The pastor sort of has to do two roles. Now, it seems as though that was the case early on as well. So if you look at 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, this is what Paul writes to Timothy. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So is it wrong that we don't necessarily have a separate church evangelist? Well, I think here with Timothy we see that that's not always possible. Timothy wasn't perhaps set aside as an evangelist. But Paul tells him to get on and do the work uh, in the absence of one there in that church. Uh, So actually, even early on, this was linked in with the role of pastor. And actually, it's just something that we all need to be trained and somebody can get on uh, and do it. Just like Timothy was there to do, to do the work of an evangelist so if it's true then that an evangelist is really about training people to do evangelism equipping them then we need to ask the same questions that we asked last week am I teachable am I prepared to be equipped for evangelism so that's the evangelists that's how they fit into the pictures what about missionaries what do they do well missionaries do what we do Missionaries do what we do, except they're cross-cultural. That's normally what we mean. We really mean a cross-cultural missionary. That's why we wanted to have that some are sent to the ends of the earth. Actually, we do need to send people other places. And it's right that we support them. So we said that we might have 200 Christians in our valley. But there are some valleys in sub-Saharan Africa that have no Christians. There are some suburbs of European cities that have none. There are some islands of Indonesia that have no Christian witness whatsoever. How will they hear without someone going to speak to them? So we need people to go across those cultural barriers and reach people in other areas. But I want to argue, actually, that we need to be cross-cultural too, in our role. So we're not quite going somewhere else, but even in our own situation, we need to think about what it means to be cross-cultural. Because even in our own area, there are various cultures, aren't there? We know that if you go down the road, there are different sorts of people. Different people from different backgrounds. Actually, think about going into Bradford, where uh, the Gospel Yorkshire is hoping to plant a church. That's a very different culture in the centre of Bradford from what we have over here. And that's in our own country, in our own area. But even within ourselves, uh, Otley and Ilkley are quite homogenous, really, compared with a lot of the rest of the country, but one of our problems is that we have our own Christian subculture. And it sort of quickly develops, even if we're, we come into the faith, uh, like I did as a 12-year-old, you sort of get sucked into the Christian subculture. So, where are most of Otley, and this isn't a real question, but do think about it, where are most of Otley on a Friday night? Okay, think about that. Got an answer in your head? Where are we, where are you on a Friday night? Okay, another question for you to think about. What do people in Ilkley like to read? What do you like to read? Are they the same things or is it more, you know, John Piper? What do people in Burley like to watch on television? Actually, statistically, it would be soaps, soap operas. What do we watch? Now, there will always be differences, won't there? Some will be necessary and wise differences. There'll be some things that we don't want to be involved in. But how much of it is just our Christian subculture? That we just don't do those things? If we were a missionary, what would we be doing? If we were coming into our area? We'd be looking at our culture and analysing it, wouldn't we? What does this culture do? What can I be involved in? Where can I build bridges? What can I do to reach people without compromising myself or without compromising the gospel? And then missionaries do those things, don't they? They get into the clothes of the people around them. They go to the places that the people around them go to. Really what they're doing is being salt and light in the world. They're not being distinctive in their clothes or in their uh, activities in that way, but in their lives, in their speech, they are different. But in the ways that they can be strategic, they are. So that's where evangelists and missionaries fit in. But what about us? Can we do this? Yes, we can, with God's help, by being salt and light in places where God has put us. Missionaries, where we are, we can do it by supporting those who have sent to the ends of the earth to do the same things that we're doing here. But it's only possible with God's help. As we go down the path that God has laid for us, as we go down the ways that God has shown us to reach people, we need to trust Him to do his work in changing hearts and minds. That's what we really need. We need God to work uh, through us. But yes, we can. So let's pray that God would work in his power and enable us to do uh, what he said. Let's pray. Father God, as we think of the task before us, Father, it's daunting. Father, as we think of all the barriers and the excuses we can think of, Father, we, we know that It's something that we find uncomfortable often. But, Father, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts, helping us to see um, who you are, your greatness, helping us to see the need around us, helping us to live as missionaries in our area. And we pray, Father, that we wouldn't get the glory, uh, Father, as people come to you, but that you would get the glory. Father, we pray that your greatness would be seen uh, in our area because you are a great God and you have given us a great gospel. So Father, give us confidence in you, not in ourselves, not in our ability, but in your ability and your greatness. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.